Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to All Music Movies, a part of the All Music Podcast series and a companion podcast to All Music Books Deep Dive. Here, we explore music films and documentaries rather than books, and there are so many great ones, old and new. In fact, these days, there seems to be a new music film or documentary every week, so we're very excited to explore this area. I'm your host, Steve J. so grab your popcorn, sit back and relax, enjoy the show. Let's talk music documentaries and films. Morphine was the Boston-born low-rock band that rose from local small clubs to indie and major label record deals and high and wide critical acclaim. They performed to packed audiences at clubs and stadiums until the band's untimely demise with the death of singer and bassist Mark Sandman on stage in Italy at a music festival. Morphine, A Journey of Dreams, tells their story, and our guest today is director Mark Schumann, Welcome, Mark. Hey, how you doing? Thanks for having me. Good, good. Uh, you know, th- there's so many questions to ask having worked with Morphine, and, and I wanted to ask first how you came across Morphine. Was it a, a song or an album, or did you see them in concert? What was your first connection? Yeah, yeah. So how I came across Morphine is kind of a funny story, and uh, I can tell you it, it started when I owned a club called the Electric Lounge in Austin, Texas. It was a live music venue. It was just getting started, actually, and I got a call from a manager uh, asking about this band Morphine, who I'd never heard of. As it turned out, Ryko Discs sent over a bunch of promotional material. Uh, we started opening it up, and I looked at it, and there's two CDs in there, and uh, we started listening to those CDs. We started playing them for anyone and everyone that we could once we heard it. It, it. Basically, the music just blew us away. And when I say we, I had a partner, Jay Huey, and uh, we started listening to Morphine and figured out how cool they were. And and uh, it was really one of the first big road shows we did. And if you can imagine that being one of your first, that really sticks with us. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'd been doing you know more local music up to that point, although the club went on to do you know years and years of uh national and international acts and was a South by Southwest venue after that. And then they came to the club and, uh, you know, we figured out pretty quick. These are just regular guys and great guys. And they were not famous yet, really. They were on their way up. You know, this was just the very beginning of it all. You know, they came in, they did their sound check. And I got to tell you to this day, I remember it like it was yesterday. Uh, it just, the minute the, the bass started and the sax and the drums, it all came together. It was just like a wave hit you right in the chest watching Mark strut across the stage, I was just in awe of the band from the moment, that moment forward, I'd say. Yeah, it was a very, very unique sound, that's for sure. And I'm guessing that was good and Cure for Pain were the two CDs you got based on the timeline. How did their shows go over in Texas? In Austin, since we had a really cool kind of underground scene going at that point, the word was out by the time they got there. But anyway, they sold out their show, packed to the gills, and the reaction was just over the top, you know, and at, at that point in their career, and I know this having done the film and, and interviewed them later, 
they were going from different cities and, you know, there'd be one city that there was no one in. And then the next night they'd go to the next city and it'd be sold out. So, you know, it was a different time. There wasn't internet like there is now. Right. People found out about music either through radios or through fanzines or, you know, magazines, word of mouth. You know, there's a lot of different ways that music were spread about back then besides the internet. One of the basis of the film I use are Dana Colley's journals. And there's a lot of uh, that in the film about him talking about the beginning, you know, and how things went and how it was either sold out or empty in the very beginning. You know, it's interesting because we're in Boston and they're a Boston band. And my engineers worked very closely with all of those guys. And I was at Riker Disc during this time period. And even up here, most of the time it was packed. But occasionally you'd go to the club and, you know, it's like, oh, they're just a local band, you know, and there wouldn't be a huge crowd. So let me get this straight. You're a club owner in Texas and you hear some music and you think it's great. You bring in the band and it's great. And then you say, I'm going to make a film on this band. Well, <laughs> I wish it was that easy. You know, the film didn't come around till many years later. You asked how I met them. That's how we met. And then they became good friends of ours. And every time they would come to town, we would pick them up at the airport. My friend Jay, the co-owner, had a 66 Cadillac limo. We'd pick them up with that or grab them with one of our cars and we'd hang out with them, you know. As they got bigger and bigger, of course, we still saw them, but we were hanging out backstage at big shows, you know. When I got about to making the film, you know, obviously a lot had happened to the band at that point. I connected with Dana Colley at South by Southwest 10 years after Mark had died. And someone sent me a photograph and said, hey, do you know this guy? He's got an electric lounge t-shirt on. I said, of course, it's Dana Colley. Tell him to stay right there and I'll be there. And so, so Dana and I hooked up and I'd seen them uh, right after Mark had died in 99 when they were touring out with Orchestra Morphine, which was the tribute kind of show or band that they did for a year after Mark died. They toured all around playing his music and their music. I had seen Dana then. So when we got to uh, the point of doing the film, I mean, I was shocked that no one had done it. I'd, I'd moved to New York after the club closed in 99. Uh, the club closed just a couple of months before Mark passed away. And, and I moved to New York and was there. I'd been there on and off for 10 years, kind of splitting my time between Austin. At one point after I ran into Dana, I said, Dana, this is something that's been on my mind for over a decade is doing a documentary about you guys. And I was really shocked to find out that no one had approached him about it. Dana was very open to it. You know, we'd known each other. I think he trusted me. I, I always was a little shocked about how much Dana did trust me while I was making the film. I just felt like it was a story that had to be told. Here was a band that was really, really unique. Uh, the incredible sound they had, everything that they did was just, in my mind, really cutting edge. You know, had an instrumentation of a, a bass, sax, and drums, which not something you hear about every day in a band that, that makes it onto MTV or a lot of the things that they did. Tours worldwide, plays a lot of the huge festivals and has this mass cult following. It was hard for me to believe at that point that no one had uh, done this. And, and Dana was very receptive to the idea. And so that was the instigation of how this all started for me. Uh, you know, I'd been in the film business while owning a club and had continuously been in the film business for about 20 years at that point. It was something that I'd wanted to do is launch into making a, a feature length documentary film. I'd produced some independent shorts and some, won some awards there in New York and things, but I'd wanted to make my own documentary. And so to me, it was the perfect subject. So you mentioned that this kind of came about after Mark had passed. And did you need to work then with the Sandman estate? And, and if so, were they easy to work with? Did they have boundaries or conditions or what was that like? Well, okay. So that's kind of a complicated story. The way Mark had done his contracts is he had basically 
made it very difficult for anything to be used commercially. You know, when Mark was alive, he he turned down a lot of placement of his music, of Morphine's music, of Mark as the writer. Uh, he turned down having them in commercials and such. And so it was explained to me that had I not had what I had when I went in, we would have never been able to make this documentary or, or release it. And to me, this is one of the saddest parts. There's so many great docs that get finished and, and aren't released due to music. For me personally, I was able to connect with Bob Sandman, who was Mark Sandman's father and Mark's sister. I had met them all a few years earlier when I first started the doc at the 10-year tribute show in Boston at the Middle East. I'd met all of them once. And they were able to connect with me after I finished the film. And I was able to go sit down with Bob and explain to him what we wanted to do. And to be honest, it was a, a very touching moment for me because it's no secret that I think that they'd had kind of a, I wouldn't want to say tough per se, but they'd had kind of a different relationship as father and son. And to talk to him as Bob was uh, aging and, you know, he's now handling his son's estate. Uh, it was very touching for me. They were very kind to me and I left them a copy of the film and they watched it and they got 100% behind the film. So what I was told later, I'm a music supervisor and, and people with music rights, that had I had not had that letter, they didn't think the film would have ever come out. It basically supported the film because the way that Mark had worded his contracts, there was no way to release a film without the support of the family behind it. Well, we're all luckier for it because, you know, you do a lot of uh, new filming too, but there's some just some amazing stuff, especially, you know, the stuff uh, of Mark in his high and dry studio and, and just some of that stuff, which is so, you know, touching is a good word, but, you know, it's just, it, it, it's in the moment. I can't imagine it without it. So that's good news. I was very lucky there that I was also given full access to the Morphine Archive uh, by Dana and Billy and, you know, Jerome, they, they allowed me to go in and pick and choose what I wanted to do and go through individual photographs of Marks. There's many of those in the film. Uh, I, I went through boxes of them and I'm very, very lucky to have full access. It's kind of a, I think a documentary maker's dream to have that type of access to make a movie. Yeah, that is. And as I mentioned, you know, I did work with them a little bit at my tenure at Rekudus and they were always very hands-on and it seems that the remaining members you know, really deeply care about the legacy of the band and Dana and Billy and Jerome Dupree are all excellent in your movie. I assume it was a very positive working relationship with them. 100%. I mean, uh, having known the guys, I didn't know Jerome before. You know, I knew Billy and Dana real well from back in the day. And Dana and I stayed in touch more than anyone, I would say. Having their support for me made it made it much easier. Now, there were there was another film that was made that everyone should see uh, about Mark Sandman, the Cure for Pain, the Mark Sandman story that was being made at the same time that I was making my film. Mm. And at one point, I had gotten into the archives, and at one point that film was asking for a specific piece of footage. Anyway, there was a lot going on, and, and I was having to slow down a little bit on the project. Dana called and asked me and said, these this other filmmakers, who I respect very much and really like their film, I hope everybody watches it, wanted some of the footage that I had. And at that point, I thought about it over a long weekend and I called Dana and I said, Dana, listen, if they want that footage, I'm going to give them everything. I'm just going to give them everything I shot. The most important thing is that, it, that the band gets a great documentary. To me, and it, it was this the entire time, you know, just make sure that the legacy of this band is told. Dana's response was, absolutely not. I want you to make this film. Mm. So, you know, yes, great support from those guys. 
Yeah, and to be clear, the, the Cure for Pain doc is, is much more Mark Sandman based. I have not seen it yet, but your film is, is very much definitively about the band and their journey. Dana, you mentioned, became a good friend of yours, and he's a huge presence in the film. You also mentioned the reading of his personal diary notes, which really act as a sort of narration. I have to ask, how did that come about, and whose idea was that? Because that was very, very effective. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that. Now, I hope Dana's listening to this, because <laughs> I'll tell you a funny story. Dana, like I said, gave me everything he had, and that's that, that was really the instigation of it. When I talked to Dana the first time, I said, Dana, I remember when you were coming around in Austin, you always had these diaries, these these uh, journals, you know, that you were writing in. So at the end of the day, if we'd gone out and done a show or party or we were hanging out at a friend's house, Dana would be writing in it and sticking photos in it. And that's when I approached Dana about making the film. That was what I brought up right away. I said, do you still have those? And he said, yes. And I said, well, has anybody done anything with them? And he said, no, no one's done anything. And I said, well, listen, this is to me a great base for our, our story. And I would love to do it. I went to Boston. Dana handed me all four of them. And I got to be honest, imagine what these journals saw in mm. traveling the world with this band. You know, they were very, very personal. And the first thing I went back and did was archive them. I digitized them all because a lot of this hasn't been digitized. A lot of the photographs, a lot of the uh, touring journals, uh, just a lot of the video. Uh, there'd been an attempt at making a documentary before that had fallen apart. There were some things that were, well, they weren't transferred, but they were kind of a, a big mess, but I, I tried to organize it and, and get it all together for the film. And I had to, I ended up with about a hundred hours worth of material, including the journals. You know, I was using the sections of the journal that I cited and I decided I was going to have him read. And then one day I just had an epiphany. I was getting towards the end of the editing of the film or relatively close. And I said, wait a minute, I want to put him on film. And so I flew down, down to Austin. We got in a studio and did a very small crew, but a very devoted crew. We filmed Dana reading the journals, and I used those pieces in the film as kind of uh, interstitials to break up the story and also to carry the story along. When I showed the film to Dana the first time, Dana, who is a very humble and very amazing, sweet guy, called me back and said he didn't want it that way. And I said, what do you mean? He said, I don't want to be that much at the center of the film. I don't know if it's doing good for our story or something to affect. I'm paraphrasing. And I just said, Dana, everyone else that's seen it, I'd only shown it to a handful of people I very much respected at that point, have been very uh, touched by this and really, really feels like it's, it's the glue that holds the film together. Yeah, I'd have to agree with you. I think it's it's a critical piece that, that really helps the narrative. And, you know, everybody, Billy and uh, Jerome uh, are in it, and, and it's, it's very much a band piece. So uh, I thought it was really really a good way to navigate well and i did try to tell the story from the inside out you know i i decided that the way i wanted to tell this film you know i wish i could say i did this all on my own but i had people look at it people i'd known in the industry and, and uh, good friends that are editors and things but at one point i i knew that i didn't want to have a film where there were just tons of talking heads giving one-line comments about the band and as it developed and the more personal the interviews got uh, with everyone, I realized, hey, I, I need to show this to a friend of mine, and, and Malcolm Earn in, in New York, and he looked at it, and he said, I, I, I don't think you need much more of this. I think you have your story, and I really give Malcolm credit because that put me on a more of an intimate film told from the inside. I was happy with how it came out in the end. Inside is definitely the way to describe that. I'm curious, you, you know, like Dana, for instance, in the movie, he talks about the transition of the band, you know, from the independent label to the major label scene. And having seen that from the other side, working for the independent label, 
I know that they went through quite a few hoops there. And Dana at one point says that with the release of The Night, quote, we were all fighting for our jobs. Were you aware of kind of that stage of their career? Well, not until I did the interviews, to be honest. You know, they'd gotten pretty big at that point and they weren't coming back to Austin. Now we're talking late 90s. We're back in that period again. And, you know, as I interviewed everyone, there's a lot of reasons they don't want to talk about that period. You know, there were a lot of things that happened that I don't think they could talk about. I think in the end, you know, there were two sides to every story. I tried to tell their side. And if anybody wants to do a film about the other side, they're more welcome to do it. You know what I mean? It's kind of a tough thing for me to talk too much about, although I certainly respect how the band got to where they were. Fair enough. Fair enough. But you mentioned talking heads in the movie and you wanted to kind of be careful of that. But there's some incredibly interesting fans of Morphine in your movie. Joe Strummer, for one, one of my favorites, and he is hilarious just bumping into them. And there's also Henry Rollins and Steve Berlin of Los Lobos, to name a few. Do you know their stories? How did they get to be fans and how did you get them to talk to you? Because their comments are very good as well. Well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you another side note to that too, Steve, is uh, on the footage that I was mentioning that the other film wanted to take, it was the Joe Strummer footage, which Dana had given to me early on. And I tried to only use people that were connected to the band or met the band or hung out with the band, you know, outside of a few clips that I did use that were from different TV show hosts or different things like that. How did I get connected with Steve Berlin? Well, you know, it, it was already such a large part of the story, and Dana was such a fan of his that I decided this would be a great person to interview. I guess I could have asked someone for his number, but I was in New York. Los Lobos was playing. I went to the show. And, you know, I don't know if you know Los Lobos or ever been to one of their shows, but those guys are great to this day. Mm-hmm. I mean, they come out front afterwards, and they have a beer, and they talk to everybody. And if someone wants something signed, they'll sign it, but they're not necessarily just lining up signing autographs, you know. But they're just the kind of guys that come and hang out. That's how I met Steve, and I asked him if he wanted to do it, and he said, yeah, let's do it. Uh, not trying to name drop, but it's just one of those things that are really cool that come out of a project like this. You meet people, and, and you stay in touch with them, you know. Henry was a little bit of a different story. You know, I've always been a huge Henry Rollins fan. I got in touch with his management. They said flat out, I don't think he'll want to do this, but I'll run it past him. Mm-hmm. Well, they called me back 15 minutes later and said, he wants to do it. So, you know, part of my job was made easy because it is morphine. Right. And, and of who they are and who they were, people really respected the band. So I was very happy to get the Henry Rollins interview because, you know, someone with Henry's mind and, and memory, even though he's very current today and still doing a lot of things, is a great representation of uh, the 90s and what was going on in the scene. You know, And these guys hung out together. They saw each other. They were there with him. And that's what I tried to use people like that. Yeah, and of course, Steve Berlin is a horn player, so it was always interesting to hear his perspective where, you know, the saxophone is, is a co-lead instrument anyway, and, and I thought that was a really good perspective. And of course, Joe Strummer, you got the best 30 seconds, I imagine, because I love that scene. <laughs> Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. 
With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. We're speaking with Mark Schumann, who's the director of the film Morphine, Journey of Dreams. Some people say that a musician going out on stage is the ultimate way to go. And I get that on one level, but that's certainly not what I felt from your film. Yeah, you know, I think that's kind of a, I don't know, a way people look at the world, right? But I kind of look at it the opposite. Even though Mark wasn't necessarily a young man, he wasn't an old man. I have so many friends now that are in their 60s, 70s and 80s that are still creating art. And to me, the story of Mark Sandman is, is very, very different because, you know, obviously his, his life was cut short and he was at a very high point of his creativity and his career. And, and not just Mark, but the band as well. And even though I know that they had a hard time on the last record and there were a lot of changes with labels and everything, I just feel like there were so many more years to come of creativity and music from him. You know, I think it's a romantic notion that when people die on stage, they're doing what they loved. I mean, there is that sense of it. I like fast cars, and I've told a couple of my friends, if, if, if I die, I know, I know I was having a fun time while I was doing it, you know. And of course, I'm, I'm kind of joking, though. And when you really think about something like this, it's a, to me, it's just a tragedy that someone's life was cut short. Even here we are, what, 21 years later, you know. It kind of points to your title, Journey of Dreams, too. And I'm wondering how that came about, because... There's a lot of really emotional content in, in the movie. And, and watching Sabine, who is Mark's companion, is, is really, those must have been some very tough interviews. Yeah, you know, they were. You know, Sabine, you can just only imagine what she'd gone through. And I, I was very, very lucky in a sense that when I started making the documentary, technology had kind of caught up with it, where I was able to do these interviews on my own. I think uh, in terms of me just being in the room with these subjects or people from the band, you know, I, we were able to have more of a conversation and it was a much more personal space. And I think that they opened up to me more. I also think that after 10 years, they were very much still processing it. You know, these things get buried deep in our souls and in our psyche when something this tragic happens. And I think that in some sense, they were ready to talk about it. And everyone that I talked to, if it was close to the band or was with the band, wanted me to get the word out I think that what they wanted was for Mark not to be forgotten. You know, they all had their own experiences. They shared them with me and it was very touching. Well, actually, I can't say there was an easy one in the bunch mm. because the truth of it is I did several in one day in Boston. At the end of the day, I remember just being drained and someone said, how's that documentary film going? I said, well, it's a very lonely process. <laughs> I'm with these people. I'm used to working on sets with a hundred people, you know, and I said, I'm in a room interviewing these people and they're opening up to you. And by the end, you, you know, you, you really felt it. 
So probably the peak of their popularity uh, at this point, 1999, the band is playing just huge venues and they are at a stadium show at a music festival in Italy and Mark collapses on stage uh, and they rush him to the hospital. And Billy and Dana's interviews in your movie about what they saw is just chilling. Yes, you know, and I've been to Palestrina, you know, I went there and filmed afterward as well. And uh, that was some of the first things I shot. So I, I think that helped me with the film. I shot a lot of my own footage there and it, it allowed me to really kind of get my headspace into what they'd experienced. I met the people that were there and I interviewed them, you know, they're in the film as well. The name of the film Journey of Dreams came about from a couple of aspects. One was when they named themselves Morphine, they were naming themselves after God of Dreams Morpheus and the Mark talks about that. And secondly, I felt like reading through Dana's journals, they were almost like dream sequences when I was finished with it. And looking back, you know, memories are like dreams Mm. or dreams are memories. I don't know, you know, someone else can figure that out, but it's a little bit of both, you know. And so for me, the the title just fit. And it came to me one night when I was laying there about to fall asleep. and And I said, that's what it is, journey of dreams. It also plays to the side that they had this amazing career. Everything was going great. You know, they were successful. They were all making money. There was a bunch of people making money. It wasn't just morphine. It was all the people surrounding morphine. And it all stopped one day. What did you learn about the band or their music that you didn't know before, rather? And did you walk away after your film and and meeting these people, appreciating the band and their music and their journey even more? I think I learned what a big influence Mark Salmon was on the band. I didn't really understand that before. You see a band and you think, oh, they're just three people together. But uh, really, in the end, Mark was the leader of the band. He wrote the songs or or wrote the uh, lyrics and the music. And then, of course, Dana wrote his portion. And and a band like Morphine, I I think, in my mind, they were kind of equals. But I think Mark ended up having more control over the music at the end because it was something that he started. He wrote the lyrics. I mean, I think I learned what a great experience they had together. You know, As, as with any family, there were challenges. There were, you know moments of tension and et cetera, et cetera. But overall, I think they had a wonderful experience together. Yeah, and their music, you talked about how Mark might have been more of a leader, but they were very in the space at the moment when they performed live, more like a jazz band, but they had this other thing going on, this bluesy, low rock sound. And it was really just a, you know, one of a kind band. Yeah, they they are, and were rather. And, and I think that uh, part of the reasons, what you're talking about, they're kind of... Uh, you know, jazzy, low rock sound. They have that. They could, they could turn on an audience into a dancing wildly or they could go really low with it. I think it's also about what's not there. You know, it's kind of the the music in the spaces, right? So uh, I think it was Dana that told me that Mark said one time to him that people will hear that your, your saxophone is the guitar solo. People will hear it, you know. You know, I want to congratulate you on your film because for people who don't know the band, the story is is very evident there, both in the rise and the uh, tragic fall. But uh, they were a great, great live band. What would you like the audience to walk away with after watching your film? I mean, I hope the audience walks away with a deeper understanding of what Morphine was, who they were, and understands their music more. And most importantly, I hope that they don't forget the band. And maybe we make some new fans along the way. Well, that's good advice. And I think your movie helps uh, sustain that legacy. And to me, they represented kind of a new chapter of indie bands, you know, here in Boston, a lot like Austin. There's a lot of music and live music, but there really was only one morphine. 
Let me ask you, what are you up to these days? Any interesting new projects on the horizon for you? Since I finished this film, you know, I've always worked in the film business, so I'm constantly working on different projects. And I had a couple of projects in development. I worked a little bit on a project called El Susto. I was a co-director on the Mexico part of that. I'm also doing a bio piece on an artist named Pio Polito, who was from Mexico City and also ended up in Austin, Texas. The thing I recently did, I can't talk too much about it, but I pitched uh, to a very uh, well-known uh, band in America that's been around for almost 50 years. So I'll let people guess on that one. I'm still waiting to hear. That was just two weeks ago. Fingers crossed. We'll see what happens. If that doesn't happen, I've always got several other things, you know, in the, my back pocket. So uh, I plan on starting to shoot uh, another film in the next six months. Well, when you get something that you want to talk about, please, uh, you know, hit us up. And uh, I want to thank you for your time. Mark Schumann, the director of Morphe, Journey of Dreams. It's a great documentary. If you're a fan of the band, you'll love it. If you don't know the band, maybe you'll love it even more. Thank you, Mark. Thank you. Appreciate it very much. All Music Movies is part of the All Music Podcast series and a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.